Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today is George Plaster of Nashville Sports Radio. George will appear on the guest line, which is brought to you by Bowling Branch. That was started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowling Branch sheets were until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to BowlingBranch.com. That's spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code Vandy and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Well, the Commodores have a marked presence in the Major League Baseball playoffs. Yesterday, Walker Buehler started for the Dodgers, went four innings, gave up two runs, struck out eight in the Dodgers' victory. Buehler did not get the victory because he only went four innings and left with the blister. But anyway, the Dodgers beat the Brewers 4-2 and are now taking a 1-0 lead in a three-game series. The Vandy Sports Podcast is presented by Jody Jones, DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile, Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after general and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. Jody has earned the title of number one in Nashville for cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team. In a spa-like atmosphere, Dr. Jones has worked with many athletes, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate service to all of his patients. Jody never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care. Special thanks to Jody for being the title sponsor of this season. George Plaster joins me today on the podcast. George, of course, has been helping us out for months here. He was the former football and basketball announcer at Vanderbilt, now has his own show on Nashville Sports Radio. Of course, if you are in this town, you know George Plaster. You probably grew up on him. Uh, George, thank you for doing the show with me today, as I know you are nervous as a cat with the Braves about to first pitch here in about 45 minutes. Well, it's funny you say that because we're sitting in my den right now getting ready for game two. And if there's a game three, it's going to look like a Vandy alumni party. Sonny Gray for Cincinnati, Kyle Wright for the Braves, Dansby Swanson, uh, Atlanta shortstop Kurt Casale has done very well as Cincinnati's backup catcher. And then maybe as important a person as there is in that deal is uh, DJ who is the Reds pitching coach, and I have no doubt has been part of the resurgence of Sonny Gray. I wish them a lot of luck next April. Uh, I hope that we don't end up in that scenario and that the Braves win it today. Uh, I felt like I sat in the electric chair yesterday for four hours and 45 minutes of tense playoff baseball. And uh, for a change, my team won one of these, so I'm thrilled. Yeah, that was really a crazy game yesterday. It ended in 13. I thought a couple times the Braves were basically over and done. Uh, the, the 12th or the 13th, they'd get them mixed up. But one time I think they got out of bases loaded, one out or no out. Uh, I promise this podcast is not all going to be Braves talk. But we do have a little bit of a Braves fan contingent in the audience. And I, I know they are interested in your opinion on them, and which we'll get to that in a mailbag question. But I think – 
<laughs> a lot of nervous people in our audience yesterday watching the Braves. This is just my opinion, but I think in this opening series, the best two out of three, there's more pressure on the Atlanta Braves than virtually any other club out there because they have had no playoff success since the early 2000s. Now, long-term, I think the pressure's on the Dodgers. The Dodgers are clearly the best team in Major League Baseball. They've got the best starting pitching, and yet there's this nagging feeling that something will come up, Kershaw won't pitch as well. That's the team that long-term is in the either win the World Series or it's not a success. And I'm hoping in the next year or two when Atlanta gets their pitching straightened out and they get Soroka healthy and they go get, whether it's trade or free agency, another starting pitcher, that they end up in that same pressure cooker. Well, that would be nice. And I'll tell you what else is nice is Vanderbilt played a football game. Uh, We have something other than a disaster to discuss. Uh, I know you got to see some of it. Um, You know, could have been a much worse start. They didn't come up with the win, but I think the defense looked good, and there's a little bit of hope heading into the LSU game. Well, first of all, I don't know that I can remember a year where there was less excitement going in and less expectations. Uh, I think most people, if they're honest, thought they would go down to College Station and just get slaughtered. And instead, it turned out to be anything but that. Defensively, they were really good. And on the offensive side, you saw little sparks of things. There's no question that there's a quarterback in the making. Seals has got a lot of positives, a lot of things to be excited about. I don't necessarily think he's got the weapons around him that they had a year ago. I know they don't. But as he gets closer to being a sophomore by the end of the season, if they can keep him healthy, it might be really encouraging. Now, here's the one thing that you have to be fair about, because in September, especially given the year as it's been, as crazy as it's been, what we don't know is, what is Texas A&M? Are they not anywhere near what we thought they were? Was that simply a game where they overlooked Vandy? Um, you know, I, my guess is we'll get a little better answers when they go down to Tuscaloosa uh, to play Alabama. And, you know, by week four or five, you'll have a better gauge of all of these teams. And with LSU coming in, that's another one that may be hard to gauge right now. Yeah, with LSU, we know obviously that team's not as good as it was a year ago. Uh, with AM, I think you raised some valid points. I watched that team play at times. I watched the stupid things they did, like the block in the back of the end zone, bringing kickoffs out, carelessness with the ball. You saw Jimbo Fisher's reaction at halftime. That told me a lot about how A&M may not have been as focused as it should have been, which take nothing away from Vanderbilt because that team showed up focused and ready to play, and I think that's a good sign. And you look at LSU this week, and I think in contrast, that's a team that, If attention had to be gotten, I think that should have happened last week in Baton Rouge. And I think – I don't want to say that this game is a truer test of what Vanderbilt has, but I wonder if it might be because of the circumstances. Well, there's no doubt they're going to catch LSU focused. And maybe that wouldn't have been the case if they'd steamrolled Mississippi State. But Mike Leach came in with a lot of this Washington State stuff that he's been running, and LSU didn't look like they were ready for it. 
Uh, the kid Costello throws for 600 yards. By the way, he just completed a pass 30 seconds ago for another 20 yards. My God, it just kept going on and on and on. And every time you thought LSU might get a stop, they never came close to getting it. And it was really pretty shocking. You know, all of this is shocking. Tiger Stadium didn't feel like Tiger Stadium, partly because it wasn't a night game, but partly because there weren't 92,000 people there. It's a different deal. And they're going to run into a strange scenario this week where, you know, maybe you've got a couple of thousand people there, mostly students or, you know, players, families or whatever. Um, And it's just going to be a weird setting, but I want to see how Vandy handles it. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. This team has the feel to me potentially of some of those Woody teams in the late 90s where they were really good on that side of the ball, but just offensively there wasn't much there. Now, it's not exact comparison because I don't think their corners were nearly as good as Chavis and Vinson and some of those guys. And I think their defensive line is better. Uh, you know, and that was a group, too, that had some star linebackers, some guys that were all SEC. And maybe this group has it, too. I want to see what Demetri Moore does this week if he's back. I think that's interesting. Now, I will say on the offensive side of the football, I think there's more talent at the skill positions than some of the Woody teams had. Now, I don't know if the offensive line is as good, but it does feel to me a little bit like the late 90s all over again. Uh, that's after one game. Maybe two weeks from now we come back and say that was ridiculous. But with all we have right now, that's kind of the feel that we have to it. And, and by the way, you saw some of Woody's teams blow up too um, where, where they weren't very good on defense uh, like Vanderbilt was a year ago. But to me, this has a late 90s, mid-90s feel to it. And that's where I kind of come in because I did three years of that, and it was very frustrating. Uh, Damian Allen uh, was not very good. Uh, seals, you know, his ceiling is way higher. Uh, they've got to get some people around him. Uh, and, and if they, if those people are there, then they've got to show up. One of the things you worry about is number of plays that you keep a defense out there. There, there's this theory in college football, and I'm not saying it's a magic number, but it's certainly one that gets thrown out there that when your defense is out there more than 65 plays that there becomes sort of a, a law of diminishing returns. And I think you've seen a lot of the schools that were in this whole hurry-up mode, you know, rush to the line, get every, every playoff in 11 seconds. A lot of that has slowed down because they figured out that while it may have been helping their offense, it was killing their defense. So long-winded way of saying whether Vandy – gets a lot of points, they've at least got to possess the football some and keep it away from the other side. Yeah, controlling the tempo, I think, is going to be big. And up-tempo offenses are a big thing. That's kind of more the direction they've gone this year. And I thought, man, of all the years to do that, this is not the year because they're just not as good as they were offensively in terms of talent the last few years. But at the same time, I think if you use that in spots – 
For instance, if you got a defense on your heels and it gets a quarterback in rhythm, you, you take your shots there. That's one thing I did think that they did a really good job of last week on the coaching front was picking the spots to do that. And I think that's something – look, this is not a team that needs to look like a Hugh Freeze team where they're running 80, 90 plays. The defense can't survive that. But when you pick the right spot and it's the right time and you find a rhythm or whatever the criteria are where you think that needs to be used, I think that's where they need to go. One of the things that was obvious Saturday night, and and I'm glad Watson Brown brought it up on our show Monday, they looked way better prepared than what I saw a year ago. It looked like the two coordinators um, made a difference on Saturday night. It looked like they had a good game plan. Uh, I never really felt that way a year ago, in particular – you know, on the offensive side, I thought they butchered three great talents a year ago, and really only one of the three ever amounted to anything. Um, you know, you wish you could maybe give this group some of that, but it doesn't work that way. But I did notice from a coordinator standpoint, I thought they were much improved. Well, it really goes back to the age-old problem at Vanderbilt uh, because, like, two years ago, the offense was very good. They had a really good quarterback. They had an outstanding tailback. They had good receivers. They had a much better offensive line with Bruno Reagan and Justin School and some of those kids. But you look, on the other hand, the defense wasn't very good. And you look back to the 90s, and we talked about that, where the defense was really good and you had nothing on the offense – And this year you look at them and you say, well, defense looks like it's pretty good. Offense has just got a couple of players. I identify Ken Seals as a guy that you'd like to have on an SEC team if you're anybody. I think Cam Johnson and Amir Abdul-Rahman can play. I think Javion Marlowe, the jury's out, but I've always liked him. You may have some young and -and up-and-coming linemen who show themselves by the end of the season to be capable SEC players, but we're not there yet. But what I'm looking at – is look on defense, and not only do they have a starting bunch, I think, that works, but I think they have some guys behind them that can play. But it's that age-old problem where you might have 30 or 40 SEC-caliber players at Vandy. I would say you probably need 60 or 70 because you're going to get some guys hurt. Um, it seems, seems like they just never – and I think that's what James Franklin did really well is he got them to a place where they were competent on both sides of the ball – but it's just that age-old problem where, well, I've got this much talent and you got to use some of it over here and some of it over there, and they just never seem to be able to rectify that on both sides of the ball at the same time. Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head. It's why certain schools end up where they are and certain schools end up at a higher level because they've got the ability to go out and recruit in bigger numbers. You know, you, you saw a little bit of this around the league Saturday. Ole Miss really surprised me by how good they were offensively. Matt Corral, who I thought a year ago was much ado about nothing, he was pretty darn good Saturday against Florida. But on the defensive end, they're dreadful. They're not going to stop anybody. And, um, you know, th- th- that's sort of what goes on in the bottom – tier of the league is one side maybe competent uh you know all the way up toward really good but then there's the other side um and you know (laughs) I take it to the playoffs um you know I've seen a few Braves teams that had 
brilliant starting pitching and couldn't get anybody out in relief. And oh, by the way, did I say their relief pitchers yesterday were brilliant? Thank you. God bless you. Yes, God bless them indeed. The bullpen was the saving grace of that team a lot of the year. And by the way, we've got a question in the mailbag about the Braves. I'll get to that last, but we're going to go there now. Our mailbag is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at HQ or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He's my insurance agent. Give him a try and tell him you heard about his business on the podcast. Okay, here's a big one that got a lot of talk on our board this week. Dusty Orleans wants to know, I'd like to hear your thoughts, George, on the Will Purdue slash Alfonso Harvey Twitter discussion. First of all, Will Purdue is a very close friend of mine, so anything I'm going to say I'm biased about. Will is frustrated by, um, you know, what, what, what's been going on over the last however many years and the belief that at the top of the university that there's not a lot of care about athletics. And I don't think that makes him a communist for saying that. I think he's got every right to put that out there. What I don't want to see this kind of thing turn into are black and white issues because I just don't feel like that's what is needed here. Um, you know, Will Purdue's a Vanderbilt guy. I know as good as anybody how much he cares about the school because I listen to it, you know, probably once or twice a month when we have our phone calls. And so, um, you know, I just I hope that everybody understands that Will's criticism is based on care. It's not based on anything else. There were a lot of things that bothered me about Alfonso's tweet, but one of that really bothered me is she's his right-hand man. I mean, they are joined at the hip. She is, or he is her hand-appointed football guy for the Black and Gold Council. He defends her at every turn. When that tweet went up and he dropped the word bigot, somebody over there should have taken the initiative and said, you guys get that thing pulled down yesterday. Uh, is last time I checked, which was maybe yesterday, that tweet was still up. And I think that's a very poor reflection on the university. Well, I'm not going to say much other than Will deserves better than that. Will deserves the benefit of all doubt. Uh, number one, he's an incredibly loyal Vanderbilt person. And uh, the, the, the characterization of him is simply wrong and it's inaccurate. I had Will on a podcast earlier in the spring, and one of the things that came up, and I think he's brought this up other places too, he wants to go to work for the school in a fundraising capacity, wants to get a salary, is going to donate that back to the school, so on and so forth. And I think that's gotten some discussion. Some people have criticized Will a little bit for attaching conditions of, you know, give me a position. Knowing Will the way I do, and I'm going to see what your opinion on this is, I don't think Will is after this to drop conditions and say the school must jump through hoops just like I want. I think what he wants is accountability and not some volunteer possession or position where he's out there in the ether doing God knows what and there's no accountability. Will wants to do this out of the goodness of his heart. I don't, I don't think Will is any, hung up on any conditions to have a job there to raise money. I think this is a guy that just wants to help 
And it just amazes me at some of the criticism he takes at times uh, for just saying that. I'm like, you know, let's have some common sense here. If I'm running that university, I get Will in a room, we, we grab lunch, we got this ironed out in 30 minutes. Okay, we may not be able to do it this way, but we can do it that way. I just think it's asinine when the most public figure, maybe in the history of your basketball program, I'm not saying Willard was the best player, but he was player of the year in the league. He also was a very high-profile player with Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Everybody in basketball who's followed the game for 20 or 30 years knows who Will Purdue is. When a guy like that comes to you and says, I want to help you, you take him up on it, and you look at this black and gold club that she has created, and you're like, who are these people? Like, How did they miss an opportunity to have a guy like Will Purdue, who is begging to help them and has been for decades, and everybody knows it, and I know they know it because they listen to all our podcasts, how does it happen to where he still does not have a role or something over there to help them when everybody knows that's all he wants to do? Well, I'll start it like this. I think uh, from an athletic department standpoint that that's something that has the, – the boat has been missed on that for well over 10 years. Uh, I've known for a long time that Will has a desire if he could find an excuse to move back to Nashville – um, you know, a couple of times he and I talked about potential sports talk radio situations. We just never could, from a timing standpoint, ever make it work. Um, God, there's no telling how much heat I would take if, if that ever happened. <laughs> because Will loves taking little shots at me. But here's the truth. He and I are great friends. I know his love of this school. I know that he's frustrated that this is a power five school that at the top has not shown a lot of care. And, you know, his willingness to be critical, I don't think should be criticized. I think people need to pay attention to it because you're right about this. When, when you're trying to think about who are the most high profile former Vanderbilt athletes in the year 2020, you know, you would probably go with people like Shane Foster and Will Perdue on the basketball side. You would go with Jay Cutler in football. And right now, you'd probably go Dansby Swanson um, on the baseball side. And so, you know, the school needs to, to sort of sit down with Will and figure out if there's a way to, um, you know, make something work that's beneficial for everybody. Yeah, in terms of visibility, for basketball, it's Will Purdue and then a huge drop-off to whoever's number two. In football, Jay Cutler's the guy that everybody knows, not just because he played forever, but because of the reality TV fame. And so those guys are head and shoulders above the pack. Jay, from what I was told, had a really good relationship with Malcolm Turner and his people. Uh, when Malcolm was here, I think they were making headway on getting some stuff done. I don't want to put words in Jay's mouth, and I have not spoken to Jay. But I just say I, I think that Jay, when they ran Turner off, just said, screw it. I, I'm tired of this. It's back to the same old nonsense. And when you look at baseball, you know, you get David Price, Dansby Swanson, Sonny Gray. I mean, take your pick and, and, and many more on the way. But I just look at the way Vanderbilt has these high-profile athletes that still care about the school – and Jay would come to practice at times, even when he was still playing. These guys care deeply. And if Daniel Deermeyer is listening to this, I would say one thing to him. 
you can gain yourself so much credibility with your fan base. You can help your school so much by reaching out to both those guys and seeing if they will help you. Well, I think you pretty much said a mouthful there. Um, you know, th this is an athletic department that is not on solid enough footing to blow off people in the high-profile world that care. And I know better than just about anybody how much Will cares. Um, you know, we, we had a long talk going down to Coach Newton's funeral a couple of years ago about a lot of this kind of stuff. And I know, I know better than virtually anybody how much he cares about Vandy. And so I, I would be – those who are wanting to criticize Will right now, I'd be very hesitant to go down that road because I just think you're wrong. Well, you get a sense of people by being around them a little bit. You've been around Will a lot more than I have, but you can kind of tell when somebody's motives are selfish and self-serving and, and those things. And I know that, and I'll speak for you on this, but I know that both of us do not believe those are Will's motives at all. He just wants to help, but yet he, here we are once again. Let's go to the next question in the mailbag, and this one is from Ann Arbador. He says, I love your stories, George. Can you talk about the time Paul Houlihan berated a Vanderbilt basketball player after, excuse me, basketball player after a loss, I believe, in the NIT at Madison Square Garden? He's got to be talking about the Billy McCaffrey incident. I'm laughing because, gosh, that's now been, what, 27 years ago. So I've got to kind of jog my memory a little bit. Um, at about the same time that all that was going on, he also fired Dot Detheridge, who was just an incredible, wonderful woman. Uh, a second mom to a lot of the basketball players. Frankly, she was a second mom to me, and I will never forget uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna rat out the name of the player who called my show and just went off about Ms. D getting fired and the Billy McCaffrey deal. And so I had some really good info within 24 within less than 24 hours of the incident. And you got to understand, back then I wasn't that far separated from from that group. I wasn't nearly as separated age-wise as I would be now, i.e., I'm old now. I wasn't as old then. So I was getting a lot of info. I had hired Willie Donick at that point, and, of course, he had been teammates to a bunch of these guys, and so they felt pretty free sharing the info with me. And one thing I do remember was I put a call in – Gosh, um, I want to say to the New York Giants weight room, Ed McCaffrey at that point I think was a New York Giant, and some of the players had given me the info that Billy was staying up there. And so <laughs> I contact Ed McCaffrey, who has no idea who I am, and I just said, you need to pass this message on to Billy. He needs to call me. Well, the next night, it's, it's like 11 o'clock at night, and it, and it feels like something out of The Godfather. Billy calls me, and he won't really tell me much, but I was like, Billy, 
I don't need you to verify the story, but you need to know that I'm probably going to come with some of this pretty soon, so get ready. So that was before my time on the media, and I, I don't, to be honest, I don't know the story. I remember there was some talk about Houlihan berated him after the game, but what exactly happened there? Well, he did. Um, you know, Paul, Paul was a brawler. This is a guy that was a former strength coach at North Carolina uh, who came here uh, probably not ready to be an athletic director, ironically had gotten a great uh, recommendation from Mac Brown who back then was Carolina's football coach in in his first go round. Listen, I had some some brawls with Paul. I, you know, I'll never forget. I was up in Cincinnati. This would have been April, May of 1990. 90 or 91. I I may be wrong on the date, so everybody bear with me here, but I had the like the original cell phone the big old Motorola jobby. And my dad calls me. I'm at Riverfront Stadium with Scott Droud, and we're, we're watching the Reds and somebody. And dad calls me, and he says, Houlihan is going to fire you. And I said, well, yeah, I know that, Dad. I said, why are you calling me? And he said, well, it's in the paper. And so I did a little snooping around, and found out that Houlihan had been telling people how much fun it was going to be to fire me. Well, on the way back from Cincinnati, Paul called me, and he told me, he said, you need to set up a meeting with my secretary. And I said, I don't need to do squat. I said, if you want to fire me, save me the gas money and just go ahead and do it. I said, but understand one thing. I said, you're off to a bad start in this job. And I said, you continue to make enemies. And I said, you don't need people like me on you. I said, so just know that. And that resulted in a <laughs> in a conversation that probably needs to end right now. End of story. All right, I'll end with an easier one here. This is... Let's see. Mr. Vandy says, I would love to hear your prediction on who you think will be in the World Series and go Braves. Well, go Braves as well. Um, you know, the truth of it is the Dodgers should get there. And the truth of it is, I think Tampa Bay is better than the Yankees. Now, the Yankees have got more of the the stars that everybody knows, Um it's difficult, even for somebody like me who follows this on a day-to-day basis. I can't really tell you all the names in Tampa. Sure, I can tell you about Blake Snell. I can tell you about Kevin Kiermeyer, who's a great defensive center fielder. But, you know, if you asked me to name 20 people on their roster, I'd have a hard time. But i tell you this, they're pretty damn good. And they may be good enough to beat the Yankees. I think they are good enough to beat the Yankees. And so I'm going to go Dodgers and and Tampa. Um, you know, I would love to be able to put Atlanta there. But the thing is, they're going to run into problems with their starting pitching. Um, Max Freed, who pitched great on Tuesday or whatever, what Wednesday, um, he'll probably continue to pitch great. But now the rest of it, who knows? George, that's all for the mailbag. We are about 14 minutes away from first pitch, uh, so we're going to 
go watch the Braves together here in a minute. But thank you for joining us today. Any parting thoughts before we end the show? Well, I hope everybody uh, stays safe and well and does what they have to do to, to continue for that to be the case. Um, hope everybody enjoys the, the college football this weekend. Hope Vandy plays well. Um, you know, I guess I'm thankful that we have college football. At times it feels like it's on a banana peel when you hear all of the, the cancellations. But this is a day and time where you just got to roll with the punches and if one team goes down, you move on to the next one and see what happens. Thank you to George Plaster for joining us on the podcast today. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Thank you for listening. We will have Kevin Ingram with us on Friday morning. Kevin, of course, is the sideline reporter for Vanderbilt Football. He will help us preview the Vanderbilt LSU game. Thank you for listening to this one. Be sure to listen to the one on Friday as well. And if you don't, have a great weekend, and we will be back at you on Monday.